Hey, everybody. Welcome to Episode 5 of Expiration Date. My name's Michelle. And I'm David. Expiration Date is an access point for people to understand and experience the modern U.S. criminal justice system. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the previous four episodes, I recommend that you pause this one and go back and listen to Episode 1 through 4. We'll wait here. glad to be back from the holiday break. David, did you notice anything on the news while we were gone? Did you notice any, you see any fun stories or? I wouldn't say it was a slow news time. Yeah. Now that we're, I'd say heartily into 2021, right? Mm -hmm. I think there's been a lot going on. Yeah, we've had one insurrection. So I guess. One that's been highly publicized. I think there are probably a lot of other tiny ones. Tiny insurrections. (laughs) I came across this great website and doing some of my research Mm -hmm. and it is a database that has, let's see if I can bring it up, a database that um, captures all of, it's the ACLED, and that stands for the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project, and it loads statistics of armed conflicts, conflicts and data from the United States and all over the world, and you would be surprised at how red and dark maroon the U.S. map is, Mm -hmm. and I'm not saying it's far right only, I mean, there's other stuff, far right, far left. I did read that, and this is, a, I think, a tribute to some of the the capitalism of the media, but of the 10,214 Black Lives Matter protests, mm-hmm. actually, I think it's more than that, of that 94% of them, between 94 and 95%, were peaceful. Mm-hmm. So you're looking over 10,000 Black Lives Matter protests that were peaceful, yet the news doesn't record that. Mm-mm. And to be fair, the right side protests, they were 96% um, peaceful as well. Of course, mm-hmm. there were about 2,500, 3,500 of them, so a lot less, but mm-hmm. all the same. Yeah. Yeah. But we don't hear about this. No. I understand that if you live in a world where you don't know the history, that you could be disturbed by the burning of a cop car. Like... But so, so what? <laughs> Who gives a f- about the car? <laughs> Men are dying. Children are dying. Right. Women are dying on the street. Cops are killing them. And there's zero accountability. That's an interesting perspective, too, because, and I know it's not shared by a lot of people, but when you have someone who has just as much outrage over a police vehicle, mm-hmm. but not so much outrage over the death of an unarmed person, mm-hmm. what is that really saying that? they believe of the the victim in that situation, right? Yeah. And too, it says like, and when you set up these false, what do you call it? When you set up a certain ideology that doesn't want to admit they have that ideology to be angry at, like people that have a far right white nationalist mentality, hero worship the police in some ways, mm-hmm. but that does not hold up as we saw with people that stormed the Capitol where they, you know, the police officer that got in their way they beat him to death with, with a, a fire, fire extinguisher. extinguisher. Yeah. Yeah. That whole event is going to be like studied and done to death, just like the JFK assassination. We're going to be seeing this for the rest of our lives. And we're going to be hearing like, oh, the this police officer did this and this police officer did this and this person did this. And it's going to be, I think it was just a mess. And I do think there was something really fishy going on between the military and the police that day. I don't know what it is, but the police commissioner that resigned says that he called for the National Guard seven times and they told him no. 
because that happened because there weren't enough officers at the Capitol. Mm-hmm. And don't don't send me videos of cops standing around like doing nothing because I mean, there was like two groups of two or three of them. What are they going to do? Right. To start shooting into a crowd of people? I yeah. Mean, or you can't incite riots. Yeah. Violence is going to get even more violent, especially yeah. when you're outnumbered. They would have gotten torn apart. And something really fishy happened with the officer that did get killed because his the guy that was with him the ne- like the next day committed suicide. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's really bizarre. I know, and it's my understanding that... National Guard troops have to be called out by is the president or the governor? I I think it's different for so because in DC you have like the equal representation DC, without taxation. Oh no, that's what they want. <laughs> in DC you have it's not a state, which is part of the problem. Yeah. Or not part of the problem, but part of the issue. And you have the the federal employees, the federal officers at the Capitol and you have the city police and you have the Capitol Police. And it all kind of came to a head with like the federal government in the military and the police force and the executive branch, like it just a lot of, a lot of things to work out. And there's a lot we don't know. Mm -hmm. We can say some things like we can condemn that and say that that was. Oh yeah. Yeah. We can condemn racism and systemic racism. Yeah. And that's not cool. Yeah. And we can condemn white supremacy. That's true. We can condemn that as well. Mm -hmm. And we, you and I are in an, interesting positions myself more so than than you at times because we have the ability and the privilege to call it out and then make space for for other views to come through right and hopefully that's kind of what we can do a little bit through this podcast as well right well yeah and we both have the privilege of putting down our headphones and walking away from this and not having to right live as that you know like not having to be a person of color in the United States be in a marginalized community and so we recognize that as well. Right. If you're going to incite a riot, do better. <laughs> like, don't. Or, or counterpoint, <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to do it, don't do it to protect a billionaire in the office. Do it to protect the kids on the street. <laughs> wow. And I think even Martin Luther King, who's is going to be the guidepost for a lot of these, these protests. I think he would, he would argue for some civil disobedience. He would. And he would, he refused to condemn rioters as well. He wouldn't do it. Uh, They tried to get him to do it every time they interviewed him. One thing people forget about Martin Luther King is when he was murdered, he was one of the most hated men in America. He was not this glorified, eloquent black activist that people adored. He was hated. There Mm -hmm. were celebrations all over the United States when he was killed. And he was a deeply unpopular socialist. Yeah. Interesting. And they heavily, heavily edit what he says on MLK Day when all the Republicans and Democrats tweet out quotes from him. Who is they? Just politicians and think tank people, news people. Pick and choose what you want for your own slope on things, right? Mm -hmm. I guess that could be said for all of us. That's true. Even to a certain degree what we're doing here. So it's your responsibility, Michelle, David, and listeners, to fact check and think around it. So we want to, I mean, I just want to get more critical thinking out there, right? Yeah. Well, and to like maybe, especially at the end of this episode, I'm going to say some things that might be really uncomfortable for people to hear. And I want you to know that I'm not coming from a place of trying to be like, gotcha, or haha, you're a racist. But like, there's some, there's a lot of things in this system that incentivize you to think a certain way because it's profitable for the people in charge. Mm -hmm. And so... When you, when you listen to what we're going to say, 
maybe just kind of sit with the information for a minute before you form your opinion. Work on your active listening skills. Oh, yeah, I agree <laughs> with that. Sorry that you have to listen to me tell you, but... No, you're good. It's good. We're going to discuss women in the prison system. Throughout, we will be discussing issues that affect women across the spectrum. The material is not very complicated, so it's going to be pretty brief. So we'll be able to play the second part of our interview with Victoria Law, where we discuss more of the prison system in general terms. There are approximately 219,000 incarcerated women in the United States. According to a November 2018 report by the Prison Policy Initiative, the rate of incarceration of women in the United States is a historic and global high, with 133 women in correctional facilities per every 100,000 women in the United States. And when we say historic and global high, what that means is the United States has more women locked up than anywhere else in the world currently, and more women locked up than any other nation in recorded human history. And you're talking about like... Everywhere. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Which isn't surprising if if we have more incarcerated people than anywhere else in the world that unfortunately... Then we're going to have more women. Yeah. Yeah. And that's official numbers and official places. Yes. And uh, we'll talk about this later, but um, this data, because the prison population of the because the incarceration of women is absolutely booming in this country you'll see things like just look at the date when you google stuff about this because pre-2015 the united states was third Mm -hmm. um, in incarceration of women so we were behind el salvador and uh, thailand um, but we have drastically surpassed them in the last six years Throughout this episode, I'm going to be quoting a bunch of articles and podcasts and books. I'll link in the show notes where the sources come from, but I'll I'll tell you the names of the articles and where they're from. From the Sentencing Project, Incarcerated Women and Girls, over the past quarter century, there have been a profound change in the involvement of women within the criminal justice system. This is the result of more expansive law enforcement efforts, stiffer drug sentencing laws, and post-conviction barriers to re-entry that uniquely affect women. The female incarcerated population stands over seven times higher than in 1980, and more than 60% of women in state prisons have a child under the age of 18. What happens to the children? They're taken away. Uh, Arrest and imprisonment is considered abandonment of your children. Can they go to family? Uh, In some cases, if the family is capable of taking them. Wow. But most are put into the foster care system. And we've talked about some of the just ludicrous ways that women can get or people can get arrested for Mm -hmm. not paying a a fine or something like that. Mm -hmm. This fantastic article summarizes pretty much everything you need to know. Though many more men are in prison than women, the rate of growth for female imprisonment has been twice as high as that of men since 1980. There are 1.2 million women under the supervision of the criminal legal system in America. As with all issues in this country, it is heavily racialized. Hispanic women are incarcerated at a rate nearly twice that of white women, and black women are incarcerated at a rate nearly four times that of white women. Not only is the prison population of women increasing dramatically, you also need to think that every person locked up, man or woman, may have a mother, daughter, sister, wife. One in four women in America has a significant friend or family member that is incarcerated. Hmm. One in four. Also from the Sentencing Project, the female incarcerated population stands at over seven times higher than in 1980. Between 1980 and 2019, the number of incarcerated women increased by more than 700%, rising from a total 
of 26,378 in 1980 to 222,455 in 2019. What are your thoughts on why that happened? Because it's incentivized to happen Hmm. because of capitalism. Interesting. Upon arrest, mothers can be charged with abandonment and children taken. As we discussed in previous episodes, arrest does not equal guilt or is it necessarily justified. They then must go through family court to get their children back. This involves a lengthy process. It is costly. It's expensive to do it. You have to pay a lot of money to get your kids back. And it is very difficult to do if you are not in a stable environment. There are good people that take in kids. But for the vast majority of children in the foster care system, the statistics are incredibly bleak. There are women still jailed all across the country for miscarriages and stillborn infants. There was a rash of hysteria about shaken baby syndrome that resulted in pseudo-experts popping up that would testify for money to things that were absolutely unscientific and untrue. This coincided with the media's need to sensationalize irresponsible mothers. We don't have time to get into the poor quality of prenatal health care in the United States and how unbelievably bad it is compared to other developed nations, and the poor and marginalized have even less access to it. From the Marshall Project by David Perry, our long and troubling history of sterilizing the incarcerated state-sanctioned efforts to keep the incarcerated from reproducing beginning in the 20th century and continuing to today. This includes the coercion for early release and to the outright forced sterilization of those deemed incompetent by the state. This has gone on for well over a century, and as with anything else in this country, it disproportionately affects women of color, the poor, and the marginalized. Okay, so you're saying that in some instances, people in the administration of these prisons will trade sterilization of women for early release? Yes, in all different kinds. A lot of times it's part of the plea deal that you do some sort of semi-permanent birth control or mm-hmm. just outright sterilization. This happens to men too, not just women. Is this based on a, a crime that is like... It's eugenics. Well, yeah, it sounds like <laughs> eugenics, but like, is it... Did, is there even a veil of I didn't of mean like, that to sound like David didn't know what eugenics was. David knows. <laughs> the veil, this, a veil of um, like, you know, association with a specific crime? Or is it just like, you know, you stole a candy bar, let's let's tie the tubes or else you get five years in jail. No, it's pretty generalized oh across all kinds of crimes. Well, crimes of poverty, not crimes of wealth. So now I want to read a portion of the transcript from the appeal Justice in America, The Faces of Mass Incarceration. It's kind of a long little clip, so stick with me. So like we said, the likelihood of incarceration at some point in their lifetime for men is one in nine. There are predictive numbers But if trends continue, that's one in three black men as compared to one in six Latino men and one in 17 white men. Meanwhile, one in 56 women will be incarcerated at some point, but that's one in 18 black women compared to one in every 45 Latino women and one in every 111 white women. Gender identity is also an important part of the conversation that's sometimes overlooked. People in the LGBTQ community are criminalized disproportionately and at a rate of incarceration for transgender women is astronomical, especially transgender women of color. 47% of all black transgendered women will be incarcerated in their lifetime. We've been trying to paint a particular picture for you 
of what incarceration looks like and who it affects disproportionately. Poor people, black people, queer people. But let's zoom in even closer on something really important is the family of incarcerated loved ones. You know we've been talking about family separation a lot in this country over the past few months, and I think it's fair to say that we all agree what's happening to immigrants is truly unconscionable. It's devastating to see children taken from their parents, but it's worth noting that family separation is a long tradition in our American criminal legal system. By separating children and babies from their parents for years over relatively minor infractions is something that happens every single day in this country. Experts estimate that over two-thirds of women serving time in prison are mothers and over 90% of adult men incarcerated are fathers. I want to just give you a little bit of a trigger warning. We're going to talk about sexual assault in prison. If you need to, you can skip ahead just a couple minutes. I think everyone knows that sexual violence in prison is not unique to women. We have not gone into detail about this in the podcast, but please understand that it is utterly devastating for every population imprisoned in the United States. Brian Stevenson, in Just Mercy, in his book, Just Mercy, Chapter 8, he tells the story of Trina Garnett. And I would encourage you to just go listen to that chapter or read that chapter or go to his website. I'll link it in the show notes for you that just tells her story because it really just sums up everything that's wrong with the American criminal legal system. Look, I know in this episode I've been throwing a bunch of random numbers at you and random information at you that's really troubling, but I just want you to understand why I did this. Historically, prison has been seen as a men's issue, and I want you to understand that that's not reality. I want you to understand how ubiquitous the problem is. This is insane. The incarceration of women in this country is utterly unique in the world and in all recorded human history. The women in America are the most imprisoned population of women in the world. The next time you hear a politician talking about the plight of women in other countries, ask yourself why he's doing that, why he or she is doing that. They want you to focus on the trouble that women in Iran have or women in North Korea. And I understand that they're using my own xenophobia to do that. And in the next episode, we're going to be talking about the intersections of mental illness and the criminal legal system. We'll have to be brief because there's a long history of not only disproportionately affecting the mentally ill, but of specifically targeting them. I'm really excited for you guys to hear this. This is the second part of our interview with Victoria Law, and I'm also going to put her website in the sources for this episode because she talks extensively about women's issues in prison, and I would recommend all of her articles that she has on her website. Right now, enjoy this uh, interview from Victoria Law. Because I've li- I listened um, to Justice in America when you do a lot of writing for The Appeal. Mm-hmm. So that's actually how I found you. Oh, there, okay. And then found your website. Um, and so really excited to talk to you. And so maybe before we, we're going to record the whole thing, but tell us how mm-hmm. you want to be introduced. Uh, Victoria Law, freelance journalist and author covering issues of mass incarceration. Um, and author of Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggles of Incarcerated Women, and co-author of Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reform. From what I've understood from women's prisons is that in 2003, Congress and then President George W. Bush signed the Prison Rape Elimination Act into law. 
and it was supposed to prevent sexual assault from happening in prisons. But what has happened, particularly in women's prisons, is that acts that are not sexual are often either written up as PREA offenses or they're threatened with uh, PREA offenses. So acts like having a consensual sexual relationship, uh, if caught, can be a PREA offense. Holding hands, hugging. People have talked about how when their mother or their brother or a loved one died, you know, they would get in trouble because uh, somebody hugged them or, you know, like stroking hair. Things that are, again, things that everyday actions that we would take on the outside if somebody is experiencing a loss or is grieving, people try to comfort them, could be written up. And as Michelle just said, it can also affect your chances of parole because what the parole board sees is you had an infraction for a sexual offense. Mm-hmm which then makes everybody think, oh, you're dangerous, you're a predator, you're a threat to society, stay in prison. We don't want you preying on our communities. When in reality, perhaps the person said, I'm very sorry for your loss and gave somebody a hug. Somebody was giving somebody else a back rub. Somebody had a girlfriend in you know, another housing unit and was caught having sex, but these are not dangerous people and these are not dangerous offenses but they are written up as if they are Mm -hmm. more specifically about your work you've written several articles about women in prison and Mm -hmm. the more i read about the unique unique terror that affects women behind bars both trans and cis women um what what drove you to focus on this in your work when i first started focusing on women in prison i wasn't seeing a lot written about women in prison and i wasn't seeing a lot specifically written about the actions that women themselves were taking around their conditions of confinement. So in the early, in the 1990s and early 2000s, when I first started looking at prison issues, uh, prison issues were largely defined as male issues. I mean, they weren't, it was not said, these are issues and they affect men and we only look at them. But if you think about the fact that the majority of people in prisons are parents. And when they first entered prison, were parents to minor children. And then if we think about the ways in which society is gendered, we look at the fact that when a father goes to prison, he is more likely to have somebody in his family or somebody in his circle, his wife, his ex-wife, his girlfriend, his ex-girlfriend, his mother, his sister, usually a female family member or circle of family members that care for his children. When a mother goes to prison, she is more likely to be a single head of household or she's arrested alongside the other parent or the other parent might say, I am not here to, you know, I I am not here to raise three kids. I'm out. Um, And she's less likely to have that kind of support system that men in prison have. And her children are five times more likely to end up in foster care. So if you think of parenting as a prison issue, then you have to shift your focus as to what people are doing around parenting issues. So what I found out was that women in prison were organizing to keep custody of their children. So they were going to the law library and having to figure out what, how to decipher these papers that they got from family court, which is separate than criminal court. So criminal court, you go, you face um, a guilty or a not guilty verdict. Family court, you go before a judge and the judge says, you know, 
Why did blah, blah, blah happen with your children? Are you a fit parent? Why should you be able to keep your children? And oftentimes people in prison or women in prison are not told when they have family court dates. They have to rely on the prison to bring them to family court. So if they don't show up, the family court judge does not necessarily know that uh, Martha Smith did not show up to court because she's in prison and the prison officials forgot to bring her. All this family court judge knows is Martha Smith didn't show up. So maybe Martha Smith doesn't really want her children because she couldn't be bothered to show up to court. So if we look at the ways in which prisons can also be a very gendered type of punishment, we can then look at the actions that women are taking. So what I found was they were not only teaching themselves law and how to navigate the family court system, but they would often sit in the law library and help other women who would come in and be like, I got this paper, I don't know what this means. What do I do? Um, and then they also organized to have outside advocates come in and do know your rights training. Like if you have children in foster care, what are your rights? In New York state, the foster care workers are supposed to facilitate visits with incarcerated parents. But most parents did not know this, so they couldn't demand this right. And then when they did ask for this, uh, the social workers and the foster care workers would often say like, well, you know, the prison is far, it's, you know, uh, it's too far away, the wait is too long. There were a host of reasons why uh, the, the children would not go to see their parents. But we do know that um, incarceration does not necessarily make somebody a bad parent and it should not be. And when looking at family court, repeated contact um, and sustained contact is one of the, the factors that judges look at when they decide whether or not somebody should keep custody of their children. Mm -hmm. I'd love to know some more about your research into um, transgender population in prison and, and some of the, the things that we don't think of when it comes to their conditions and, and their, their, their mm -hmm. time in prison. Yes. So we don't know how many transgender people are in prison because there aren't statistics kept about. So, so uh, when people enter a jail or a prison, you know, there's a set intake form that they have to fill out. You know, you're a male, female, black, white of this age, you know, have this crime, have these tattoos, but there's no box for transgender. So, and every system I mean, every system can modify this intake form as to whether or not they count transgender people, but many do not. And I was, a few years ago, I was at a conference of people who are working around sexual assault. And one of the workshops I went to was a workshop of sexual assault and rape crisis counselors that worked in jails or prisons. So under the Prison Rape Elimination Act, uh, people in jails and prisons are supposed to have the same outside support that rape victims on the outside have. So you're supposed to have a uh, victim advocate that goes with you to the hospital and can be present with you when you're being interviewed by uh, law enforcement about what happened to you. You are supposed to be able to have a, uh, a crisis counselor that you can call on. Um, oftentimes uh, when they go visit, when rape crisis counselors talked about going to visit a jail or a prison, which was very difficult because they would say like, you go, you have to drive very far away. So it takes up half of your day. That's half the day that you're not able to help other people. So they would go say once a week. And many said that they would talk to staff when they were doing staff trainings about 
transgender, the harms faced by transgender people, the fact that they are more likely to be sexually assaulted um, if they are, you know, particularly trans women held in men's prisons um, and men's jails. And they said that the prison and jail officials would nod and be like, that's terrible. We understand the risk. And then they'd say, we've never had any transgender people here. And the rape crisis counselors who would also go into the jails and prisons be like, but I saw two, you know, last month or last year. But so there's this idea that somehow this is a problem that occurs elsewhere, or it is not a problem that they have to deal with. And then in some places, um, there are, there's very hostile, there's transphobic staff, there's a transphobic culture, so that uh, trans people do not feel safe, um, either from incarcerated people around them and often by staff members who uh, hold the keys to their cells quite literally and can force them to do anything, you know, from demeaning sexualized acts to just demeaning acts to begin with, to subjecting them to violence and brutality. Um, so there have been numerous instances across the United States in which trans people have reported being placed in cells with people who are openly transphobic. And then the staff would do nothing when they were beaten up or brutalized. Trans women have talked about being stripped naked and being put on display for men. So this is a very targeted form of violence towards trans people. And then there's also medical care. We talked earlier that prison medical care is not great, is often inadequate, can be life-threatening. And then for trans people, often even just getting hormone dosages correct um, is often a challenge and a battle because they often face hostility from prison medical care providers. They often are told that uh, because they did not have a legal prescription for hormones on the outside. And many people who are, many trans people who end up in prison, like many other people in prison, often are the people who did not have a lot of economic support and end up in prison for acts of survival and are poor and perhaps did not have a way to get a legal prescription for hormones, but were taking uh, street hormones instead. But they don't have this documentation and all of a sudden they're cut off from their hormones or they have their hormone dosage drastically reduced, which can cause serious medical problems. So these are a couple of instances in which trans people face all of the same terrible conditions that cisgender people face, the lack of healthcare, uh, violence, the inability to social distance during a pandemic. Again, the overcrowded prison cells, uh, the fact that you know even if you are in a cell by yourself, you're still breathing in the same air as everybody else. The distance from family, the dehumanization, and then on top of it, there are the very trans-specific acts of violence, both physical violence and then also the forms of, I would say, uh, you know, institutionalized violence, such as, you know, being called Mr. Brooks instead of Brooks. So Brooks being a last name. So in prisons, most of the time, people are just called by their last name or their number, but trans women in particular have said that staff will call them Mr. Brooks, Mr. Smith, as if to really just dig home that they don't care about their gender identity and they are going to purposely misgender them throughout their stay. And that might seem like a small thing until you realize this happens day in and day out. 
And it's just another way to remind somebody that they don't matter while in prison. I'm going to say, I, when I read your article that was titled Keys to Your Door, I had mm-hmm. to, I, I had to, I was reading it while my daughter was taking a nap and I was like, I can't, I can't read mm-hmm. this right now. I'm going to mm-hmm. have to, I'm going to have to get a, I'm going to have to wait <laughs> until she goes, uh-huh. like, I'm glad because yes. it was mm-hmm. just so violent. It was so, yes. it just disturbed me on a deep, mm-hmm. which is good. It's, I mean, it's not because it's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's such violence, but If there's anything else you want to bring up or. The one thing I would add is that when people are thinking about what to do instead of prisons, like if you're organizing to say like, we want other conditions to be sure that the replacement for whatever terrible condition that prisons cause is not another form of imprisonment. So uh, my book prison by any other name looks at some of these popularly proposed alternatives to incarceration, which seem like kinder, gentler, more humane forms of punishment, such as putting people on electronic monitoring or probation, rather than having them in jails or in prisons. But in reality, what ends up happening is it does something called widens the net, which means it can sweep more people under the type of surveillance and state control that prison does and becomes a slippery slope back into prison. So for instance, people on probation are more likely to end up in prison than if they were not on probation. Because when you are on probation, which is a popular alternative to incarceration, you are required to conform to a set of rules that if you were not on probation, you would not, and they don't ultimately matter. Like you have to be home by a certain time. You have a 9 p.m. curfew. Nobody is hurt by the fact that you come home at 9.30 at night. Mm -hmm. Your spouse or your parent, you know, or your loved one might be annoyed that you are half an hour late to be home, but it is not a criminalized activity. In some places, you are not allowed to, um, you know, drink alcohol, even if you are an adult under probation or electronic monitoring. Under electronic monitoring, you are not allowed to leave your house without prior approval, uh, because if you do because you have a GPS device attached to your leg, the sheriff's department or the private company monitoring you will automatically know and you can be sent back to prison, which during a pandemic in which you might need to take a loved one to urgent medical care or go relieve somebody else who needs to take a loved one to urgent medical care means that you have to choose between that emergency or your freedom or your relative freedom. So we have, and these end up tending to encompass people who might not otherwise be imprisoned otherwise. So it is not necessarily an option for people who are accused of or convicted of murder or rape or assault. It's more that it's like, okay, now we're going to take all the residential burglars and put them on electronic monitoring. But if they slip up, if you drink that beer, if you go to your, you know, your neighbor's house, if you go to grandma's birthday party, we can send you to prison. And it's a way to say, okay, we are giving you this chance, but we're giving you a very, very short leash and a very slippery slope to slide down on. So when thinking about what to do instead of this prison system that costs $352 million, uh, people should be careful not to 
vie for solutions that are then going to just expand the prison system into their homes and their communities and their schools and their neighborhoods. Well, and it's, and I'm really excited to read more about this subject because it, because I have just in the podcast I've listened to and the things that I've learned, most, a lot of the reforms that they try to pass actually end up just harming more people. Yes. Um, and it just, and there are laws that seem to, like I'm listening to a whole series right now about gun violence in America and about mm-hmm. after there's like a mass shooting, there's a lot of political momentum and they'll use it mm-hmm. to pass some gun restriction laws, but they end up not changing any mass shootings. They target mm-hmm. like poor black kids. Yes. You know, and it, it it's just, it seems that's how our system runs. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, well, I so appreciate you talking with us. Thank you for giving us the time and yes, really Thank you for reaching out. I have really. to say, I have to reiterate how excited she was to talk to you. And so thank you very much very for taking the time. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Victoria Law. I mean, we were really excited to have her, um, really excited to share her writing with you guys. And if anything in this episode got to you that you want to talk to me about or talk to David about, just email us. Um, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to talk through some of this with you because some of this is hard to hear and people don't understand because they're like, wait, I thought the United States was the most free country in the world. And hearing that it's the least free country in the world for all the demographics here is hard to understand because you just don't hear that on the news. Sometimes people don't understand that it's much worse in the United States. Yeah. Or that they're not not trying to be funny. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to be like, "Ah, I got you, but like, it's much worse (laughs) for a lot of people. Again, take a look at the show notes for all the resources for today's episode. And uh, reach out to us if you have any questions. There's lots of ways you can get in touch with us. You can check us out um, on our website, which is expirationdatepodcast.podbeam.com. You can email us, and that's a great way to get in touch with us, at expirationdatethepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us at patreon.com slash expirationdate. Thanks again for listening today, and we hope you enjoyed it, and we hope that you were able to learn something and and have an urge to dig deeper. And really do, if you can, listen to chapter eight of, or read chapter eight of Just Mercy. It really is, like every case that he goes through in that book, I didn't realize this until I learned about the criminal legal system. Each person that he specifically talks about is somebody that represents a huge population of people. That's Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Thank you, guys. Have a good one. See ya.